Lord, we come to you now praying, too, that as, as we hear from your word this morning, that it would, not be, it would not be me in the flesh, but that we, as a spirit-filled people, would hear your word accompanied by your spirit, that it would truly be a supernatural work that you do here among us this morning as we gather for worship. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're going to look at John uh, 17 again. And um, we've spent three weeks in John 17 in this prayer that Jesus prays for his disciples right before he goes to the cross. And this morning, we're going to start at the beginning of this prayer, and we're going to follow it to its conclusion. So really, I'm going to preach the whole chapter. Um, We were in Sunday school this morning, and Lance was talking about Thessalonians and how Paul kept saying, as you know, as you know, as you already know. And um, sometimes I feel like that should be what I say every, every Sunday here, as you know. And this morning, perhaps even more so as we come to John 17, as you already know, since we've been preaching on this, um, but we need, we need to hear it again. And as we come to the last three verses, I want to set it in its context. So as we do this, uh, my prayer is that we're going to see what a wonderful summing up of the whole gospel of John this is. I don't know about you, and I know it's different for me. I spend every week hours and hours looking at this. But uh, I've come to love even more the Gospel of John um, and to see the, the, the unique themes of John and how John, in its own unique way, exalts Christ and shows us his beauty and his glory. And so I, I, I pray that you've come away and you will come away from the Gospel of John with a, a greater vision of who your Savior is with a more, a more lovely um, understanding of who Jesus is. So this is what our Savior prays for his own. You know, you think, brothers and sisters, what a, an amazing thing that we get to listen to the prayer that Jesus said, I'm going to go to the cross, and now here's what I want to pray for all of you. This is it. It's what our Lord prays for us. And so as we do this, may this be a source of peace for you. Maybe you need peace. Who doesn't, right? True peace, biblical peace. Maybe you need joy in your life. Here's going to be a source and a cause for joy. And maybe you need comforts. Here's truly a source and a cause for comfort. So Jesus, and, and I also want to say that as we read this, not only should it be a source of peace and comfort and joy, but also a prodding. So that our striving every day matches the things Jesus prayed for. So we begin then with Jesus opening to his prayer in verse 1. When he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So what's the goal of this prayer? Is it all about you? Is Jesus praying because you're the best and you're at the center? No. No, it's not, is it? The goal of this prayer is the glory of God. Let us wrap our minds around that. It's about about the glorifying of the Son by the Father and the glorifying of the Father by the Son. And so this prayer is not about, in that ultimate sense, it's not about you or me. We are not at the center of this prayer. And there's something in our hearts that just, that's where we go. So as soon as Jesus comes to talk more about us, we get comfortable there. And we begin to feel like, oh, this is about me. That's the way I like it. And really, it's not a very satisfying place to be. So let us recall always that this is about the glory of God. That's the center. That's the goal. That's the beginning. That's the end. That's everything in the middle. And so here at the beginning, we may feel, <laughs> here's the Here's the tension. We may feel as if it's not even for us to be listening in. Okay, this is between the Father and the Son. I don't need to, I don't need to be here. Let me go somewhere else, right? 
But then here is the wonderful mystery. And this is the, this is the thing. People here, Calvinists, you know, Calvinists, they're always about the glory of God. Um, and of course, not just Calvinists, but they seem to emphasize the glory of God. And people think that, that well, then aren't you missing that God actually loves us? It's not just about his glory. It's, we can't detach between those two things, brothers and sisters, and that's the mystery here. That is the wonder. How is God to be glorified? Jesus prays. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And then he says something that, remember, we talked about just as we're tiptoeing off. We hear this, and we turn around, and he invites us back, as it were. He says, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. How is God glorified? He's glorified in the gift of eternal life that he gives to you, and that you have even this morning. That's how God is glorified. So he's glorified in your handout, not primarily through something you do. It's like, you know, how is God, what do I have to do to glorify God? Well, that's not a bad question, but it's secondary. He's glorified not primarily through something you give to him. Brothers and sisters, he's glorified through what he has given to you. And what has he given to you? The gift, and it is a pure, free, and sovereign gift of beholding his glory. In the gospel. It is the gift. Of seeing and knowing the father. And this isn't something you do. It's not something you gave to him. He gave it to us. The gift of seeing and knowing the father. In seeing and knowing his son. Jesus Christ. God is glorified then. When he's known. And that's the gift of eternal life. It's in that light, then, that Jesus prays in verses 4 to 5. I glorified you on the earth, having finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, remember, we're listening to a prayer, not just to a text preached. So Jesus prayed these words. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And again, now we again feel like, okay, maybe I'm on the outside listening in. Maybe, maybe this isn't about me, right? Or maybe I shouldn't be here listening. But we'd, wrong, we'd be wrong to feel that way, because Jesus, how did Jesus glorify the Father on earth? Now, you've got it in your handout. I think you know the blank. What's the word there? By making him known. How does Jesus glorify the Father? By making him known to us. And now why does Jesus pray that the Father would glorify him together with himself, with the glory they had together before the world was? Why does he even pray that? Because he wants us to be there with him and to see that glory. Because to see that glory is to see the Father's glory. And because this is the goal of eternal life. To see the glory of the Father and the Son, that's, that's to have the consummation of the eternal life you have right now. You have eternal life now. One day, you're going to see his glory perfectly. And that will enter into life in its fullness. So on the one hand, you have eternal life now. Well, let me ask you, what's eternal life? What is it? It's to know Jesus. It's to know God. So if you know God truly through knowing his son, do you have eternal life? That is life. That is life eternal. And if you have it now, that's the guarantee you'll have it one day. So Jesus prays in verses 6 to 8, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. 
For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. Oh, I don't, sometimes words fail, right? When you read these verses and you reflect and you meditate on those, what did you hear? What, did anything jump out at you as you were reading these? I kept hearing about you and me and you and me and I've given to them. You and me and they have known that I came from you, that you sent me. They have truly understood. Brothers and sisters, here's the miracle of of redemption. That the God who is invisible, that the God whose holiness is deadly to all of us, that the God who in and of himself, in his naked glory and power, is such that we could never approach or see him, has made himself known savingly to us in his son, Jesus Christ. What Jesus is saying here, when he says all of this, is I've given them eternal life. Life with you. And the possession of that life now, in your handout, is the guarantee that we will one day enter into the fullness of that eternal life. And yet, as we saw, eternal life doesn't work automatically. Some people think that. Some people think that, yeah, I have eternal life now, therefore I'll have it then. And it's just kind of this automatic thing, and God's got it, and so we can sit back and relax and enjoy, as it were, the ride in which God takes us. But that's not how eternal life works. How do we arrive safely? Because as Jesus leaves this world, this is what he's concerned about. I'm leaving, they're staying. I want them to get to where I'm going, and I want them to get there safely. I want them to arrive at the destination. Sometimes, don't we forget, sometimes, that we're on that journey to arrive at the destination? Jesus took that very seriously. That's why he prays this prayer. He didn't just start it. By giving us life eternal, by making the Father known to us, now he's leaving and he says, now I want it to be completed. I want the work that I began to be completed in them. And so he prays this prayer. How do we arrive safely? At the consummation of our eternal life, when we know God fully. See, what does God want for you? What does Jesus want for you? He wants you to know God Fully, even as you have been fully known. 1 Corinthians 13. He wants God to be most fully glorified in you as you know him fully. That's what Jesus wants. Do we want that? Or is this something only our Savior wanted? Jesus prays then in verses 9 to 11. I ask on their behalf what infinite comforts that Jesus asked on our behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, I'm leaving the world, Holy Father, keep them. In your name, the name which you have given me. Now, did you see that again? Your name, the name which you have given me. All things that are mine are yours and yours are mine. And we are now being caught up into this by his grace. So what Jesus is saying and he's assuming and what we know and sometimes we can forget is that the world in which we live is, never ceases to be a threat to our eternal life. This is serious stuff. The world threatens to press us into its mold. It's a constant process that's happening if it's allowed, right? It will happen. The world threatens to shape us after its priorities and values, so that our thoughts 
are like the world's thoughts. And that can only result in death. And so what does Jesus pray? Holy Father, keep them in your name. Don't let them be pressed like that. Don't let them be shaped into the world's mold. Don't let that happen, Father. Sustain them in their true knowledge of you. Because, brothers and sisters, if we, true, if we have a true knowledge of God, a true knowing of him, how can we be pressed into the world's mold? The one we know is the one we become like. The one we love is the one we imitate. If we love the world, we'll imitate the world. If we love the Father, we'll imitate the Father. Keep them then in their true knowledge of your holy name, which you have given to me, and I have manifested to them. So what we see then is that our eternal life can never be separated from our holiness. We know of the things called cheap grace or easy believism, right? What we understand from Jesus' prayer is that there is no eternal life apart from the holiness that the Father keeps us in. But in fact, here's the good news. It is God who keeps us in eternal life. And how does he do this? By keeping us in holiness. In his holy name. Not perfection, right? We understand that but in the way of holiness. There's the way of the flesh. There's the way of the spirit. And it is God, in answer to Jesus' prayer, who keeps us in the way of the spirit and the way of holiness so that we might not eternally die, but inherit eternal life. This is the work of God in us. By his power, according to the might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, what kind of power would it take to keep us in the way of holiness? Not just any old power, but the power of God himself. And so Jesus continues in verse 11, that they always may be one, even as we are. We're going to come back to this in just a moment, so I'll only say here, comment on this, that, you know, Jesus puts this in here, and honestly, brothers and sisters, when you get here, you might be like, again, where did that oneness come from? I thought we were talking about holiness. I thought we were talking about safety and arriving safely at heaven and eternal life. And now here we're talking about being one. Well, we suffice it to say here that oneness is the sign you're kept in eternal life. That we're kept in the true knowledge of God who is one. Eternal life, holiness, and oneness. This is worth meditating on at home, yourself, praying over these, these things. But these three things are all of a piece together. And so it's only in this light we can understand the miracle of being kept. Um, sometimes, I don't know, when we get that eternal life goes together with holiness and holiness with oneness, and these three are all one ultimately of a piece, we can understand the miracle of being kept. So in that light, listen to what Jesus prays and understand what this involves. While I was with them, I was keeping them. What did that mean for Jesus? What does it look like to keep us? I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. There it is again. Oh, the beauties of the triune God and the salvation he gave us through Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. So... I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. 
And that's a comfort. When we feel so alienated and ostracized by the world and we feel like we're not of the world, how good it is to know that this one who died for us was not of the world either. He was hated and ostracized by the same world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify by them by the truth. Your word is truth. So here's, here's a beautiful cause for confidence. We talked about peace, joy, comfort. So when Jesus was keeping and guarding those who belonged to the Father and whom the Father gave to him, how successful was he in his keeping and guarding? Now, I love this because we know the answer, but it's just lovely to say the answer, isn't it? He was 100% successful. 100% success rate. Not one was lost. And we understand the situation with Judas. So now, Jesus comes, he's leaving the world, and he says to his father, all these people that I'm leaving in the world and that will ever believe in you, I ask that you would keep them and guard them in the same way. What does that tell you about how safe we are? What does that tell you about how much peace we can have? Not a presumptuous peace, but a trusting peace. I want to ask you in your own heart, can there be any doubt in your mind and your heart that the prayer of Jesus will be answered? Can there be any doubt in your mind or heart that the Father's keeping and guarding will be just as 100% effectual as Jesus' own keeping and guarding was? In your handout, the Father keeps us, not just for something at the end, not just for eternal life at the end, but he keeps us in eternal life now. Which is to say, That he keeps us. He preserves you. He sustains you. He holds you up in true holiness and oneness. And what is the means by which God does this? He keeps us by his word. Now, brothers and sisters, that should tell us what a blessing it is to come here each week and have the word preached and read. It should tell us what a blessing it is that we have copies of the scriptures at home to read. But in particular, God keeps us in his name by the revelation of his name that he's given to us in Jesus. Now, for all the hostility and all the threat of the world, Jesus doesn't ask the Father to take us out. This is what we came to last week. The world is a dangerous place. We're not of the world. The world hates us. And yet Jesus doesn't ask the Father to take us out. Instead, he sends us in. Verses 18 and 19, as you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. For their sake, I consecrate myself, that they themselves may be consecrated in truth. So, what's the mission? We think of the phrase, mission accomplished. We know Jesus accomplished it, but what was the mission he came to accomplish? What was the mission on account of which he consecrated himself? It was to bring in the sheep. And join them in one flock. That was the goal. It was to gather into one all the sheep, all the children of God who were scattered abroad. Go out, find them, bring them in into one place, one flock, one shepherd, one body. Why then have we been consecrated and sent into the world? Why are we still here? Why do we live on the streets we live on, work in the workplaces we work in, so that we might be the instruments through whom Jesus is bringing in those the Father gave him. And, and with that, so that we might be the flock into which the sheep are being gathered as one. So you look at this, here's a flock. It's one flock. It's a picture of the one greater flock. And it's one. It's, in, it's into this that we are being gathered. 
So Jesus says in verse 20, I do not ask these things on behalf of these 11 disciples alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. So I just want to ask you now, what is Jesus asking for everyone who will ever believe in him, for all the people in all the history of the world who will ever believe in him, what is Jesus asking for them? What is Jesus asking? He's asking that the Father will guard them all in the same holiness. Now I know we have different ideas of standards, right? Of different various we call them the gray areas. But here's the thing. There's a basic way of holiness that's the same for all of us. And if any of us walks outside that way of holiness, we're walking outside the way of life. And so Jesus prays that the Father would guard us, all of us, together in the same holiness. So that in that sense, we all look the same. He's asking the Father would preserve us all in a common commitment to the word of truth so that we all believe the same things about the gospel. He's asking that the Father would sustain us all in a common knowing of the only true God so that we all have a a relationship with the same God revealed in Jesus Christ. And to sum it all up, he's asking the Father to keep us all in a common eternal life. Now, if we all have the same holiness, the same truth, the same relationship with the same God, and the same eternal life, if that's what Jesus is praying for, what is Jesus praying for? Sum it up. Oneness. Oneness. You see what a big deal oneness is? I do not ask these things on behalf of these 11 disciples alone, but for those also who believe in me through the word, that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. And so we're reminded again that oneness is not peripheral, it's not secondary, it contains within itself the whole of your redemption. Your oneness with the one flock sums up every element of your redemption. All that our salvation is. And so this is a oneness that's visibly on display before the world. Jesus prays for this oneness, verse 21b, so that the world may always be believing at all times that you sent me. So here's here's the reality. Whenever and wherever the world is brought face to face with our oneness. And what is that oneness? It's our common holiness, our common commitment to the same gospel truth, our common love and trust for the only true God and Jesus he sent, whom he sent, the world will always be compelled to know and to believe that in fact Jesus has been sent by God. That's the power of oneness. It's the glory of our oneness. So in your handout, our oneness is the vindication of Jesus and the triumph of his saving work, even in the eyes of a world that's hostile to him. Now certainly we can rejoice that God gives us this oneness, but are you convicted? Isn't there a place for being convicted? Do we all show to the world the same way of holiness so that the world sees one holiness in the people of God? Do we all show work and strive to show to the world the same commitment to gospel truth so that the world sees one truth that these people are all committed to in the gospel of Jesus Christ. A relationship and a trust in the only true God. So Jesus continues in verses 22 to 23, "The, the glory which you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected as one, so that the world may always be knowing at all times that you sent me and that you loved them, even as you have loved me. What's the ultimate mark 
of God's love for us. It's oneness. Here then is not just the vindication of Jesus, but the vindication of ourselves in the eyes of the world. So if you put it together in John 17, the world that hates us is forced by our oneness to know that God has loved us. And so we can ask ourselves, what do you value more? The love of the world or the love of God? Do we get all up in angst because the world hates us and doesn't love us at times? Or are we so, so satisfied in the truth that God has loved us that the hatred of the world means nothing to us? In seeing this true glory of our being one, we are compelled in your handout to pursue this oneness every day. When you pursue holiness, you're not pursuing your own personal, private, individual, isolated holiness. You're pursuing the holiness with which we are all to be engaged. You're, not, you're pursuing the holiness that I am called to pursue, the same one. When you seek to grow in your understanding of the gospel truth, it's the same gospel truth that we're all seeking to grow in. And so we are called to pursue that. And in seeing this glory of our being one, we're reminded of the reason in your handout that we were consecrated and sent into the world and not taken out as we sometimes wish we were, right? In our fleshly humanity, we wish we'd been taken out, right? But no, we see the reason we were sent in, consecrated for this mission, to gather into one the children of God still scattered abroad. Now we come to the conclusion of Jesus' prayer, verses 24 to 26. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. Do you see that again? Do you see this relationship between the Father and the Son? It's everywhere in John, but Jesus, Jesus expresses it so fully here in chapter 17. My glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. We'll only be here shortly. So let's try to grasp this here in the short time that we have. When we hear Jesus pray, I desire that they should be with me so that they might see my glory. What does that sound like to us? I mean, at a purely human level, it could sound self-serving. We've seen from the beginning, certainly not an example of that here. It could sound like I just want them to see how powerful and great I am. Let's just recognize that that can be like a feeling inside if we don't put it into words. And then let's ask, therefore, why does Jesus want us to be with him and see his glory? What is this glory he wants us to see? On the one hand, it's a glory Jesus had already with the Father before the world even was. That's what he wants you to see. So Jesus prayed in verse 5, remember, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, here's the thing. This pre-incarnate glory that Jesus had before the world ever was, it is now, it's different now because it's been tied to flesh. The glory of God the Son from all eternity past has now been, has now been hidden and so revealed to us in human flesh in the flesh of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Therefore, when Jesus is glorified again with the glory he had with the Father before the world was, there's going to be something new now. 
he's going to assume this glory for the first time ever as the perfected and exalted Savior of his people. And so now, brothers and sisters, the radiance, the the word that I would like to use, and so will use, the effulgence, right? The, the brilliance, the splendor of his divine glory, of his glorious God from all eternity past, is now but the radiance and the splendor of his redeeming power and love as the incarnate redeemer. This is the glory the Father has given to Jesus. Okay. The glory of God enfleshed. The glory of God incarnate to redeem sinful people like you and me. And this is the glory that Jesus wants you to see one day. Not just the naked glory of deity before which he would fall down, not just like a dead man, but truly dead. But a glory that envelops us, brothers and sisters. He wants you to see his glory because it's a glory that envelops you, that embraces you, and that fully makes known to you all the infinite riches of the Father's saving love for you and for me. That's why he wants you to see his glory that the Father gave to him. This is the glory Jesus desires we see and the glory that we'll never be able to fully conceive of until we're finally with Jesus where he is and we see him as he is. So here at the end of his prayer, Jesus doesn't just ask, Jesus doesn't just ask, okay? He, 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 he just makes his will known to God. So this is kind of a, a surprising thing. Jesus doesn't say, I ask you to do this. He says, Father, this is my will. This is what I want. So that's pretty bold, right? On what basis then does Jesus come before his Father so boldly? Jesus answers, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. It's true, again, now I want us to think about this. The Father loved, like we we think Jesus maybe is saying, well, you loved me when I was with you before the foundation of the world. Back then, (laughs) in eternity past, when I was with you then, you loved me then. But that's not, I don't believe, what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the point of the Father here is the Father's love, even before the foundation of the world, specifically for his son incarnate in Jesus. What Jesus is saying is, Father, a long time ago, you loved me even before I was born and entered this world. He's talking about the Father's love for him as Jesus, the incarnate redeemer. So, you loved me, the redeemer of all you've given to me. You loved me before the foundation of the world. And it's the Father's eternal love for his incarnate Son, Jesus, in his capacity as your Redeemer, that explains the boldness of Jesus in making his will known to his Father. I'll say that again in a moment, but let's put the prayer like this. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. What glory is this? The glory that is to them eternal life. For you loved me. Who did, who did the Father love, brothers and sisters? This matters. Who did the Father love? Jesus says, me. And who is me? The one who lays down my life for those you have given me. For you loved me. Now, in, in John chapter 10, Jesus actually says, if you looked it up, Jesus says, You loved me. The Father loves me because I lay down my life for the sheep. Okay? So when Jesus says, 
he prays this and he says, For you have loved me before the foundation of the world. What's he saying? You loved me, the one who lays down my life for all those you've given to me, before the foundation of the world. So maybe as Jesus prayed these words, he was thinking of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 42, Behold my servant. See, now this is the eternal son, but the father is talking here about Jesus before he was born. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul is well pleased. Now, certainly he was well pleased with his eternal son from all eternity. But he's not talking just about that here. He's talking about his eternal son incarnate, his servant, his son in servant form. With him, my soul is well pleased. I love him. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. What does the father's love for his incarnate son have to do with the nations? Everything. I am Yahweh, I have called you in righteousness, I will also take hold of you by the hand and guard you, and I will give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who inhabit darkness from the prison. See God's love for his servant. In your handout, what's the word? It's as. God loves his servant as the one who brings justice to the nations, as the one whom he will give as a covenant to the people and a light to the nations. That's, that's the one Yahweh loves. And then we read in Isaiah 49, Yahweh called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He made my name to be remembered. So now, says Yahweh, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to return Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered like a flock that's been scattered, that they might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of Yahweh, and my God is my strength. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to cause the preserved ones of Israel to return. I will also give you the one I love, to be a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down because of Yahweh who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says Yahweh, In an acceptable time, I have answered you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Who has he helped? His servant, whom he loves, in a day of salvation. And I will guard you and give you for a covenant of the people to establish the land, to make them inherit the desolate inheritance. Who does God love? His servant. And what is it about his servant he loves? He's the one who will lay down his life for his sheep. He's the one whom God will give as a light for the nations, as a covenant for the people, so that they might enter their full inheritance. Do you see now? I never saw this, brothers and sisters, until this week. It's the Father's eternal love specifically for his incarnate Son, Jesus, in servant form. In his capacity as our Redeemer, that assures us we will one day be with Jesus where he is and see his glory. And we know now what his glory is. The Father's love for Jesus is a love that by its very nature encompasses us, includes us, whom the Father gave to Jesus and for whom Jesus laid down his life. This is why Jesus prays, and this, this now makes beautiful sense to me. You loved them even as 
you have loved me. It's in the Father's eternal love for Jesus that he loved us and that he has therefore loved us even before the foundation of the world, brothers and sisters. Let's let's look at it the other way. It's in the Father's eternal love for Jesus that he's loved us and therefore that he will love you forever and always. It's because of the Father's love for Jesus and for us in him as our Redeemer that we can know we'll one day be with Jesus where he is and see his glory. Not just the naked glory of deity, but a glory that envelops us, that embraces us, and that fully reveals to us on that day all the riches of the Father's saving love for us. Then we'll understand. That's what Jesus desires for us. That's what he prayed before he went to the cross. It's why he came. It's why he lived, why he died, why he rose, so that you might see his glory. It's why he prayed this prayer. So who then can ever fully conceived of the love of Jesus and the love of the Father for us. We never can. We never can until we're with Jesus where he is and we see his what? His glory. So Jesus concludes and we listen in with joy to these words that are intended for our ears. Oh, Righteous Father. Why does he address him as righteous Father? Although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these whom you have given me have known that you sent me. So what Jesus is saying then is, I know then that in your righteousness you will do according to all that I have asked for me and for them. O righteous Father. And I have made your name known to them, not to the world. I have not made my name known to the world, but to these whom you gave me out of the world. And I will make it known in and through the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send, who now indwells us today and who testifies of Jesus within our hearts, so that as we listen to the word, there's the Spirit testifying within us to the Jesus that the word gives to us. And I will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. We said it before, we can never fully conceive of the love of Jesus or the love of the Father for us, until we're with Jesus where he is and we see his glory. Do you see how the the Father's love for us is bound up with us seeing his glory? Those two things go together. But though we cannot conceive of it fully yet, we know from the Gospel of John that already Jesus has made known to us and is making known to us now, even now through the Spirit who dwells within us, the Father's name. Already, however partially, however dimly, as through a glass it might still be, already we have seen his glory. What did John say in chapter 1? And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Which is simply to say that already we've been made partakers of his love. I don't believe then there could be any more fitting response to this prayer of Jesus than these words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. I'll conclude with this and encourage you to open up your Bibles maybe this afternoon or sometime this week and read this prayer again prayerfully. Paul writes, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction 
or turmoil, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were counted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for such unspeakable truths it feels to us that we we don't have the words. But we thank you that these words are inspired and, and, and perfectly adequate to convey to us these wonderful mysteries. And that through your spirit now, who even now resides within us and testifies within us to the love of Jesus, to the love that you have shown us in him, that we can be full of joy and peace and infinite comforts. And that as we're filled with these things, then we can strive all the more to pursue this oneness, this holiness, this eternal life that we already possess even now. Lord, we pray that you help us before this prayer to humble ourselves in confession of our sin, of our failures, to rejoice in your faithfulness and to strive all the more to live in obedience. And in the end, we thank you for a love that keeps us and never lets us go. And we thank you that it will keep us until that day when we see the glory you gave to our Redeemer. And then when we see that glory, we will know fully your love for us. We'll know fully, and yet for all eternity, we'll be going deeper and deeper into the knowledge of that love we have come to know. We pray these things thankfully for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.